name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. As Victor Hugo wrote in Toilers of the Sea, life is a perpetual succession of events, and we must submit to it. We never know from what quarter the sudden blow of chance will come. Financial markets have felt a bit like that recently. The risk management failures at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and the acquisition of Credit Suisse by UBS in March, the collapse of FTX and others in the crypto market at the end of last year, the succession of price and liquidity shocks from the March 2020 dash for cash to the September 2022 guilt crisis, both requiring central bank intervention to restore order. Of course, despite what Victor Hugo wrote, we don't have to submit to these events. When it comes to the recent series of liquidity shocks, global regulators have begun a program of work to identify and remedy potential areas of vulnerability, with a particular focus on the role of non-bank financial intermediation, or MBFI. A number of work streams are underway, including a review of margin practices, with global regulatory bodies like EOSCO playing a central role. Important as this is, it's not the only issue on EOSCO's agenda. Ensuring integrity in carbon markets and sustainable finance more generally, and the growth of emerging and developing markets are also on the to-do list. Which means we'll have a lot to discuss with our guests for this episode, EOSCO's Secretary General, Martin Maloney. As usual, I'm joined by Scott O'Malia, ISDA's CEO. Scott, you'll be interviewing our guests. What will you be talking to them about? Well, as you say, there is a lot going on, and I'm particularly interested to hear from Martin about the IOSCO approach to working on liquidity stresses and NBFI. The March 2020 dash for cash, the extreme volatility in commodity markets, followed by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the crisis in UK gilts in September of 2022 all had different triggers, but there were a lot of common themes. In each case, there was an initial price shock followed by market participants rushing to sell assets to raise funds for margin and other liquidity requirements. I'd like to find out how that work is progressing and particularly the work on margin practices. Okay, well, I won't hold you back any longer. Over to you. Martin, thanks a lot for joining us. It's great to have you on the show. Scott, it's really nice to be talking to you again. I hope everything is well with you. Now, you're about 18 months into your post as Secretary General at IOSCO. It's certainly a turbulent time for financial markets and more recently, the banking sector. What are your thoughts on the events and IOSCO's priorities in light of all of these? If you look at what's just happened, it is a a timely reminder to all of us, isn't it, that the banking business model is a fundamentally unstable business model. We have stabilized it through public policy, through guarantees from the state and through regulation, and that's great, but we have always been working to stabilize something that has an inherent instability in it, by contrast with, let's say, investment funds, which are inherently stable. There's some things we have to do in relation to investment funds, but they don't have that major challenge in them. So we should never lose our caution and our wariness in relation to banking. It's a huge part of our financial system, but we've just got to always keep on our toes and never get self-satisfied about it. I think there is probably some things that I noticed in the aftermath of March, April 2020, one of the things that drove central banks to intervene was the amount of corporates who were using short-term funding markets to fund some of their production and manufacturing commercial activities. And I remember thinking then, that's a little bit odd. Maybe we should pay more attention to how corporates interact with funding markets. And then recently... You look at events, and of course, we don't have an authoritative version yet of events, but you 
you read about venture capital companies and their runway and the need to keep a lot of cash on hand in order to give assurance that they have a future as venture capital companies. And once again, it's a theme of, well, what are corporates doing with cash or doing with borrowing? And maybe we should all pay a little bit more attention and think a little bit more constructively about what they are doing. One thing that is, I think, clear is that systemic importance is definitely not just a matter of size. Now, in theory, we never thought it was just a matter of size. We thought there were other factors as well. But we've never got very good, I think, at measuring or analyzing interconnectedness. And that is probably something we should look a bit at. Of course, my area is securities markets, and it's Always interesting to see how unhappy securities markets are when they see unrealized losses on a balance sheet. Sometimes they leave it there and they say nothing for a while, but markets will always come back to you in the end if you've got unrealized losses on your balance sheet. And maybe this is another example of that truth about markets that we should not forget. And bank shares, listed banks, it's quite interesting how important over the years bank shares have become as the signaler in relation to bank stress. So 150 years ago, you looked down the street, there was a queue outside your bank, and you started to worry that maybe there was something wrong. Well, the equivalent of that bank queue nowadays is looking up at your bank share price and see what's happening to it. And if you listen to a lot of the treasures, a lot of the venture capital companies on those fateful Wednesday and Thursday days, they were checking the bank's shares to see if they should leave their deposits in Silicon Valley Bank. And those are interesting connections, I think, that we all need to reflect on. But one thing COVID also teaches us, we all need to be a bit humble about this and take a bit of time and not assume that we know in the weeks after these events what the real drivers were. That's a great point. You mentioned March of 2020, where when the declaration of a pandemic, you mentioned Silicon Valley Bank, the most recent. We had a couple other events in there. We had the Russian invasion, which forced energy prices higher, creating some margin pressure on energy users, consumers, producers. We also had the LDI crisis in the UK when we saw a lot of volatility there and some major sell-offs as people were trying to cover their margin. Each of these are different catalysts. Each of them have a different origin and then also resulted in a different outcome as well in terms of a policy response. We know that one of IOSCO's priorities, along with several other international regulatory bodies, is the potential vulnerabilities associated with non-bank financial intermediation, or NBFI. How is IOSCO approaching this issue? We've done a lot of work with the Financial Stability Board on this question over the years, and we have focused very much on investment funds and the fact that investment funds can, when there's a crisis, they can get a lot of redemption demand of people coming to them looking for their money back because they need it for other reasons. And then those funds can have to sell securities into a falling market, and that can make a stress worse. So how do we get those funds to do less of that? And the way we've approached this with the FSB is to look for synergies where we could do things that were helpful in terms of protecting investors, but also helpful in terms of financial stability. And we've done a lot of that, but we've recently done a review of how well we've done. And investment funds are getting much better at crisis management. They're actually also getting better at liquidity management, which is a big part of what we see when the Russian invasion happens or the LDI events. You see liquidity management in lots of areas is weak, but investment funds are getting better at liquidity management. What they're probably not getting better at is designing the funds to make them less vulnerable when they've got illiquid assets. So I think the next stage of our work is going to focus on two things. One, trying to make sure 
that the investors who leave the company pay the full cost of leaving if they leave an investment fund. And secondly, looking at those investment funds that are invested in the most illiquid assets, because they're the ones that are likely to have most trouble. And we think we need to look again at that. So we will look again at that this year. And with the FSB, we'll come up with some recommendations for the end of the year. Well, liquidity management is pretty critical. The financial regulatory regimes back in 2008-9 corrected for counterparty risk. Now we have more and more liquidity risk. One of those is tied to margin. And IASCO published a joint review of margining practices with CPMI and the Basel Committee in September of 2022. Now this sets out six distinct areas for further work, and they include reviewing fitness of margin models, streamlining the margin process, enhancing transparency, and improving liquidity readiness. Can you provide an update on this work and what the next steps might be? Yeah, sure. It's important to note that we do this work. Some of it we do, as you mentioned, with the Basel Committee, who are in charge of developing global standards for banking regulations. Some of it we do with CPMI, who are trying to make sure the payment system is working well. And some of it we do with the Financial Stability Board. So it's a complicated international set of different bodies that all have to work together to make this work. But having put this margining system in place about a decade ago, it took a while to build it up. We're basically using the COVID experience of an exogenous shock, a shock from outside the system coming and hitting the market to see what that did to margining and see how we can refine the system a bit so that it encourages people to understand better what kind of margins they might be asked to provide in in a period of stress and how they can plan their own liquidity so that they meet those requirements. And we're doing that under a number of headings. So margin breaks down into two types of margin. There's the initial margin and the variation margin. We're going to look separately at each of those. We're also looking at transparency to market participants of the models so that it's less of a mystery to people what kind of numbers they come up with when they do this modeling. And then the FSB is going to come in and help us and is is working with us already to look at the bigger picture of a Is this working for users of this system so they can actually plan their liquidity? And B, are regulators getting enough data? So all those different work streams are ongoing. None of them are transformative in the sense that we still think margin system is a great system. It really works. It stabilizes the system. It's better to have a liquidity problem in firms than have a counterparty risk problem in the system overall. So that is great. We will produce under each of these six separate work streams, a set of proposals either in the latter half of this year or the beginning of next year. And then let's go out and consult with the industry and see where we get to. I think we will be cautious about making changes, I would say, because this is about refining it, about calibrating it properly, just to make sure that everyone can work the system as well as it possibly can be made to work. But never forgetting A margining system is meant to be tough in a period of stress. It's not meant to be easy. Now, kind of operationally, we have the calculation of the margin, but the operational processes are something we also have to look at. Some of the firms have struggled to process large increases in margin calls and settlement volumes during recent periods of market stress. And particularly, I'm thinking of the LDI crisis in the UK a couple months back. Now, due to a continued reliance on manual intervention and a lack of interoperability, They have challenges when markets are volatile. We think that standardization and end-to-end automation will help drive efficiency and reduce risk and collateral management. Do you agree with that? And is this something that IOSCO plans to look at? 
No, I do definitely agree with this. I think one of the things that happens when you've got stress in markets and you get increases in margin calls is you get cries for help from all quarters and things are not working well and markets suddenly, they slow down. And of course, nowadays, markets have to move incredibly fast. So what would have been a perfectly good time span to do something 10 or 15 years ago is not okay anymore as a time span to get things done. But it is very hard for policymakers to differentiate clearly between those cries for help that come from market participants who just haven't planned their liquidity well, and those cries for help that come from market participants who have planned their liquidity properly, but they haven't planned their crisis management properly. So they've thought about the, the fundamental problems, but they haven't thought about the little problems that can trip them up and just the systems and how they operate. But I'm very keen to see further progress in this area of work. And I think obviously end-to-end -end automation has its own challenges because taking the human hand out of some of these processes can actually cause new problems and new risks, and you've got to be very careful about those. So we're very encouraging and supportive of anything that can be done in this area. And we do a lot of work on contingency planning and crisis management, and we'll be happy to do more work in this area as well. Fantastic. So let's move on to um, sustainability. IOSCO recently published proposed recommendations for compliance carbon markets, as well as discussion paper on voluntary carbon markets. How big a role can voluntary and compliance markets play in the transition to net zero, and what's needed for these markets to develop further? So we're in a funny situation here, I think, because the economists will tell us that it's like carbon taxes, they'll tell us, are, are the best solution to this problem. And they'll tell you carbon markets are also the best part of the best solution because they allowed you to trade to who's the best person to hold this risk and so on. And that's great in theory, but in practice, it really is proving quite challenging. And I think in part, the answer to your question is, there are a number of different factors that have to come into place for carbon credits to play the role they could play. And the first is, to be frank, governments have to be very clear in terms of developing regulatory regimes around carbon emissions, what role they want credits to play. And in many jurisdictions, and I look across the world at this, I'm not pointing at any jurisdiction in particular, but in many jurisdictions, to be frank, they either haven't answered that question or they have answered it and then not quite done what they said they were going to do because of various pressures. So the actual regimes are critical. And if you want credits to have a strong role, you need to embed that in the regulatory regimes that put out. But secondly, I think there's a self-focused point, which is the many civic society actors who really care about this issue, they need to be convinced because a lot of them, and I hear them increasingly, are saying, do you know what, let's just go for straight line reductions in emissions by everyone, and let's not go for these complicated solutions that we won't be able to see transparently what is actually going on. And I think if you lose the confidence of a lot of those civic society participants in the validity of what you're doing, then in the end you won't succeed, and governments won't include carbon credits in their way forward. And that brings me to the third area where we've tried to be of some help which is in technical standards and trying to argue what those technical standards should be, how they should be structured, how you could turn them into a viable market. And we've done that in parallel at a time when actually the growth in people trying to set up VCMs has been spectacular. But that growth has also increased the amount of scrutiny that there is in this area. And a lot of that scrutiny has found some of the arrangements wanting. And I think we've got to fix that. I guess on... Kind of to respond to the question of straight line reductions, I get it, but we're not going to get it. We're not going to get 
kind of a global straight line reduction. Maybe emerging markets might take a different path. And there you want to make sure that you've set the right incentives. And I get the point about a carbon tax, right? That's what this is supposed to be. Make decisions based on externalities and emissions that would change your behaviors around whether you're going to cut down trees or you're going to reduce emissions, et cetera. So I get it. I get the objective that we focus not on another scheme that can offset in this net zero and credits, et cetera. But at the same time, if we don't get on with this and we don't start pricing this stuff appropriately, it won't get done. And there is an urgency. I think everybody appreciates that. And I think one of the things we've done in IOSCO, you'll know IOSCO well, Scott, over many years, is we tend to come into an area of activity reasonably late in the day. We wait for market development so we can understand the different models that are emerging in markets in relation to practice. Then we come in reasonably late in the day to generalize that into a set of principles that form a base or a floor across the world. We've done something different here. We've come in quite early in relation to this area. And to be honest, it's exactly for the reason you've just articulated. We've got to get on with this. And it's not clear how it's going to be done. And we felt we had a voice to add here, a constructive voice that would be helpful in pushing people on in the right direction. Well, I think some of the things you're referring to is the issue of greenwashing. And I completely agree that high standards need to be implemented. The discussion paper on voluntary carbon markets highlights concerns about market integrity and transparency. What steps can regulators take to stamp out greenwashing and bring greater trust to this market? And how does IOSCO fit into this conversation? Keeping in mind, there's also the Integrity Council as well, that you know, which is a civil society organization trying to raise the standards and contribute to making sure that there's transparency, there's auditability, et cetera. So there's a public-private sector solution here somewhere. How do you see it playing out? There definitely is. And it comes, I think, from a combination of two things. One is there's some basic principles about how to build a good marketplace that we have tried to articulate and bring into play here. And that's about open access for everybody into that market who wants to trade. It's about having good systems of market oversight so the integrity of that market is assured and people don't feel there's somebody messing with the price behind the scenes. And it's about having a really efficient settlement system so that you can get your trade and get on to the next one. It's about having transparency, both pre-trade transparency and post-trade transparency, and all that matters. And you've got to, I think, say it again and again, that anything that is being built needs to meet those standards. But then you come to, I think, the two key issues for these products that we need to work on. One is environmental integrity, I might call it, which is, you know, can people understand what it is that is being sold here on this market? One way to achieve this is to get product standardization. So you get assurance around the uh, standards that apply. And often that's being done at the moment through independent authorities who are sort of uh, uh, giving a stamp of approval. But there is no effective global standard around that at the moment. But the second also is legal certainty around when these credits are being used, the durations which can extend over many years and so on. If we don't break those two very specific problems about this product, we're never going to get over those doubts about the integrity of this product. And we're never going to get to the point where we have sufficient fungibility so people can actually trade these products. That's a great point. And is to spend a lot of time working on both the, getting the definitions, standard definitions, so everybody's talking about the same product, and the legal clarity, making sure that we understand how these are treated in bankruptcy and you understand your security transfer issues so you can have a good binding legal contract. Without that, you're pushing paper. And so we'll continue to do our bit to support those efforts. Now, I think most people know 
IOSCO in their role of leading the debate around regulation in the developed markets. I don't think everybody quite appreciates the significant role you play in developing and emerging markets as evidenced by the fact that you have a growth and emerging market committee, which is your largest, accounting for 75% of your membership. And IOSCO is launching some interesting capacity building and education initiatives in which ISDA is happy to participate. Can you tell us about those? One of the things we've decided to do is to launch a new set of initiatives in order to try to push higher, more consistent standards across the globe in terms of regulation. Funny enough, it's actually where we come from as an organization. It's our original purpose is to try and promote those kind of consistent standards across the globe. So you could have global markets where people could be assured that regulation in different parts of the world would meet similar standards. And we do have a huge global membership unlike the other main international standard setting bodies. We see ourselves as having a distinct advantage. So what we're doing is we're looking for partners to work with us to try to help emerging markets to answer the questions, what do I do next? I want to build my financial markets. Do I look at it in terms of products, different sectors? How do I look at it? And if I do look at them, what are the key things I need to build or change in terms of my law or my policies to actually get me to that point where somebody can say, you know, let's start a market in that country. Let's put together a product that wraps risk from that jurisdiction, whatever it is that people want to do. But on many, of course, so-called emerging markets are highly developed financial markets, and they don't need our help in this at all. But others do. Others find it much more difficult to get to the starting gate on this. We're hoping to work not only with yourselves, but with others on this. It's part of a bigger initiative over the next couple of years for us to really build our member support work. Yeah, it's all very important work. We focus on legal foundations and making sure you have that legal clarity, the bankruptcy, the netting treatment, which is fundamental. But as you pointed out, you got to build liquidity and then you have to build risk management tools and you want fundraising and being able to build and grow firms in your jurisdiction. And then eventually you kind of get to this equity market capacity, which everybody kind of wants to start with, I suspect, but it (laughs) takes some time to build this. And each country's on a different part of that journey. So it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. So good luck. We'll be there to help you. But I also read that you recently announced other initiatives for emerging market regulators. And this is a little bit forward-leaning and not this quite fundamental question. So in collaboration with the Cambridge Judge Business School, you're introducing a machine learning pilot for emerging market regulators. It's designed to provide a capacity building tool to assist policymakers in standards implementation. Can you tell us more about that? What we're trying to do here is help countries to tell themselves the truth about where they are. At core to us is our 38 principles for securities regulation, and people can get independent assessments of how they're doing against that. But that's an expensive and quite a long process. So one of the things we try to help jurisdictions do is to assess themselves, to tell themselves the truth. They know more about the details of what things are like in their jurisdiction. So they're actually the best place people to figure out how far they've got in meeting those global standards and where they should put their priorities. They may know the most about their own jurisdiction and how things are organized locally, but what they find really difficult to do is to source the comparative information internationally to see where the gap is and to see where they have to go. Because somebody can come along and tell them in detail, you haven't got your derivative markets sorted out. 
But then somebody has to come along and tell them precisely what is the gap analysis, what exactly do they have to do in order to get there. So what we're trying to do here with Cambridge is to develop a tool which will allow people to talk in more detail to themselves, to source material that could help them to figure out what the gap analysis is. And then they can come back and talk to us in a more informed way about their needs for capacity building. And you can see it's all part of a kind of a plan to create a, a, a virtual cycle of development. Interesting. Machine-readable executive reporting, or MRER, people probably know it best as digital regulatory reporting, is also has the capacity to vastly improve consistency and quality of data. As you know, this is an area where ISDA and our members are very interested. Uh, what role do you think digital reg reporting can play in enabling regulatory reporting to live up to its potential, particularly across borders? You know, this is something I've actually sort of kept an eye on as it's developed over years, the recent years, because it really strikes me and I've said this before, that there's something very odd about us having a global regulatory practice which is based upon a real 20th century technology of sending in quarterly reports or even annual reports to a regulator. And in this day and age where data is critical to everything and the transfer of data in milliseconds is widespread across the world, there's something definitely out of sync about the way regulation handles data. But I think perhaps, and, and it's for others who are closer to this to say this maybe rather than me, I think one of the challenges that we've faced is that this model came up, this MRER model, which the idea was you change all the regulatory reporting rules into executable code. And then they run across some problems. And when you think about it, it seems to me it's quite obvious. Not all the rules around reporting are equally capable of being turned into executable code. And that's a key point, I think. So a lot of your members, let's say, would be subject to reporting rules that might be quite strongly capable of being turned into executable code because they're relatively clear regulatory reporting rules. You report this box, you report that definition of timestamps and so on. It's pretty reasonably clear stuff. Some of the other areas of regulation, it's not so clear. And I suspect what we need to do in a way with people like yourselves is just build from the clearest towards the vaguest and try to find ways once we get into a better place in relation to the clearest set of regulatory reporting rules, then move on into the others. We don't, I think, have a path at the moment to do that, but we do have people like yourself who started down the tracks, and I think you've actually made some good progress in this direction, and hopefully will be a good encouragement to others to think about moving in the same direction. But one of the great things about where we are now is if you do anything in this area, then it becomes possible to build out from one jurisdiction to other jurisdictions and from one sector to other sectors. So it is capable of being done in a modular way. And we really probably should have started this years ago. At least now we seem to be moving in a good direction. Now I'd like to finish by finding out a little bit more about you. You've led a distinguished career as a regulator with a long stint at the Central Bank of Ireland before moving to the Jersey Financial Services Corporation and then on to IOSCO in 2021. Was financial services regulation always the career path? Well, probably not as a, as a little boy, no. Uh, <laughs> but I will say, when I was a schoolboy, I remember uh, first time I studied economics, after I had a glance through the textbook and read the couple of pages on the multiplier effect, my first question to the teacher was, really, is that all there is on the financial sector? And notoriously, economists used to do their best to ignore the financial sector. My natural instinct was always to know there's something really interesting and complex here to engage with. I guess, when, as a younger man, a lot of people were seeing me 
is a natural lawyer or maybe an academic. But the financial sector has always been really interesting to me because it's that combination of law, economics, accounting, business administration, sort of interpersonal skills, listening skills are critical in our business, computer science knowledge and curiosity that you get if you work in this area that is just hard to beat in terms of other areas that you can work in. This is a sort of a generalist dream, I think, particularly one like myself who kind of likes keeping up with the education and so on and learning new things. And You know, we've lived through a period, I've lived through a period of globalization with a vast increase in the financial sector, for better and for worse, and with a huge challenge on all of us to try to keep it being for the better. That requires us all to constantly intervene and engage and listen just to make sure the financial sector is working for the man and woman on the street and is not just sort of getting lost down dead ends. It's a fascinating intellectual challenge. It's a fascinating the complex area to work in. So I wouldn't have gone in, I suspect, in any other direction. When I used to do a bit of teaching on financial regulation, one of the things I used to tell my students was, if you're working in a financial regulator and somebody comes up to you and says, don't ask me why we do this, this is the way it's always been done, do not believe them. There is no way it's always been done in financial services because most of the things that are being done were not being done that far ago, that long ago. You know, there's a few things that are being done since time immemorial. But actually, the business that we're all in is so full of innovation and change and dynamic that you just couldn't get bored. That's a great point. This is a super interesting space. It's evolving, as you noted. And then think about the consequences, right? We're trying to finance growth, economic prosperity, development, sustainability, all of these things. And it never gets old. So it's fantastic. Martin, you've been a terrific guest, but we're going to need to leave it there. Thanks a lot for speaking with us today. Scott, it's been an honor. Thank you for, I think this is my first podcast. So thank you very much for inviting me. Clearly, OSCO has a lot of important issues on its plate and we'll be keeping a close eye on the MBFI work as it progresses. But I'd like to focus on one of the points you raised at the end, Scott, the development of digital regulatory reporting. Can you give a quick update on where we are with that? Sure. As I mentioned, we have launched a digital regulatory reporting solution for the US CFTC's amended swap data reporting rules in December of 2022. This allows firms to access a freely available interpretation of the CFTC amendments developed and peer-reviewed by industry working groups. Using the common domain model, this interpretation is accessible as code that firms can either use directly as the basis for implementation or to check their own understanding of the rules to ensure that they are in line with industry consensus. We're now in the process of modeling the revised EU reporting requirements under the EMEA refit due for implementation in April of 2024. We're also planning to extend the DRR to other jurisdictions that amend their reporting rules, including Australia, Canada, Hong Kong, Japan, Singapore, and the UK. There's likely quite a bit of crossover between the various rule sets, which means a large proportion of the coding can be reused, speeding up the launch time for new DRR modules. Great. Thanks for that. Both digital regulatory reporting and the regulatory response to the recent liquidity stress events will be discussed during the upcoming ISDA AGM in Chicago on May 9th to the 11th. Please do come along and join the debate. We'd love to see you there. You can book your tickets at agm.isda.org. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. 
Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org and our social media channels. See you next time.